This is a HeadGum Podcast. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Welcome to Insight Voices. I'm Kevin T. Porter. My guests today are Aminatou So and Ann Friedman. Okay, a little background. Aminatou is a digital strategist and writer. Ann is a journalist, and together they make Call Your Girlfriend. It's a podcast with a simple format. Two best friends call each other and talk about current events and pop culture. But the conversations on the show are consistently dense, intelligent, and very funny, attracting an audience of hundreds of thousands of listeners per episode. The show ranges between lowbrow and highbrow topics effortlessly, all contained within the bubble of Anne and Aminatu's big friendship. To give you an idea, here's a clip from the show. Was it you that I was telling, or maybe it was on this very podcast last week, that the uh, I really wish that I had been compiling every single brand apology that I've seen because there is something like darkly funny to me about the fact that someone is telling a designer at every single company right now, hey, can you make a statement about Black Lives Matters? Or alternatively, can you make a statement of my apology for racism, but please make sure that it's in the brand identity? <laughs> in the brand identity, that. but also mostly black. Like, can you make that happen? Yeah, <laughs> there's just something about that that is really darkly funny to me. Designers across brands, please unite and tell your stories because the, the level of comedy and just darkness of it all is, is not lost on me. It's true. When you think about the fact that there are people who are implementing these statements, like the the poor social media manager who has to post like the very obvious two-faced embarrassing statement from like whatever corporation they're running the social feed for. Like, I mean, everyone up and down the chain is implicated in the bad behavior of the people who are actually in a position to change things and who have not. (laughs) Man. Before we started the conversation properly and I asked my guests to describe each other's voices, Aminatu and I connected on our common alma mater. Aminatu, you're a UT grad, right? I am. Are you? I went to University of Texas in Austin, graduated 09. Wow, I graduated in 07. Look at us. I know. We were probably there at the same time. We were on campus. We were... We were definitely there at the same time. Did you time. do Jester? Yeah. Were you were you up in Jester dorm? Uh disgustingly, no. But <laughs> I was an I was an orientation advisor, so I lived in Jester in the summer. Okay, wonderful. I know. What a so prison. I probably actually you were my student in the summer. Oh yeah. I guess so. Yeah. Oh my god. That is that is really <laughs> funny. You were my student because I was in charge of all of 
Um, yeah, I was in charge of like all of orientation. So you were under my care. How funny. Gracious. And now you'll be under my care as host for the next 45 <laughs> uh, minutes. Look at that. Look at that. And that's the that. circle, circle of life. life. That's what we love. Absolutely. It's all I ever want for all my students to grow up to be podcasters. It worked out so well. <laughs> the highest aim in life. Absolutely. Uh, thank God. Thank God. I'm like, please don't drink. Don't die. Don't get hazed. Grow yeah. up to Just be do, a podcaster. Do some Squarespace ads. Get get some me undies mid rolls going, <laughs> and you'll be absolutely fine. Beautiful. <laughs> okay. If uh, someone had said the phrase me undies mid roll to you at that point in your life, like what would you have even thought they were talking about? I would have called you know? the police. <laughs> I know. I would have thought I was on acid. I'm like, who <laughs> drugged me? <laughs> All right. Well, um, let let's start it this way. I'm gonna to if you could describe Anne's voice to me. What do you think Anne's voice sounds like? Anne's voice is delightful. It is, you know, like a little authoritative in a I know a lot of things way. And also just very inviting. That's oh, I love oh. I love this exercise because uh, obviously when I just ask the person to describe their own voice, they usually go into such a negative space or some sort of self-deprecation. But I love that with two best friends doing it to each other, that's all, it's going to be more positive. And how would you describe Aminatu's voice? Aminatu's voice has a very... I would say warm, almost like a roundness to it. Like I, I also find it very inviting. That word, um, that word really rings true. And you know, occasionally there is kind of like a note of huskiness to it. Like if I'm describing this like a fine wine, <laughs> I would say that that is um, one mode. Um, but also, you know, I love the way that it kind of goes up in pitch when she's excited about something. There is a specific way that she says, yeah, and you know, and I know she's about to follow that with something brilliant. And and so there's something about the like, that like slight increase in pitch where I'm like, get ready, hang on, the great insight is coming. <laughs> I'm sure after, how many years of friendship is this in 2020? Was this Mark? 10, 10. We are entering into, um, yes, we are 10 years. Uh, next year will be 11, right? No, we're in year 11. We met in 2009. Look at that. I don't even know math. That's how bad my voice is. We are in 11. 11. Love to hear it. In 11 years, surely you've picked up on the vocal and verbal tics and the sort of triggers and the sort of like habits that each other does in the sense of, okay, I know she's excited. I know she might be a little pissed off right now. I know she's trying to be patient right now. All that stuff you've probably internalized to such I know she's degree. hungry. Always. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what does Anne sound like when she's hungry? What does her voice sound like then? <laughs> Anne sounds very much like I sound like when I'm hungry, which is a reason I think I've picked up on it, where um, your voice slows down a little bit. You are um, just like things exacerbate you that are uh, very small. And I and I notice that we both slow down a lot. And, our, you know, it's like I can feel that the brain is trying to follow up with the with the mouth. And sometimes, you know, I'm just like, you just need something to eat and everyone here will be happy. It's my problem and it's the problem of a lot of people I love. So it's um, it's beautiful to be able to remedy that for us. Yeah. And what a nice thing to be known by another person in such an intimate way. Feels good to be to be working with someone who knows what I need to eat. I will say it's the only way to really work productively with someone. <laughs> yeah, it, it it's kind of a binary of like, do they know when to feed me or not? And this is going to be a good working relationship or not. And if we don't have that, we might as well forget about it. 
a baseline, really. I do wonder after 11 years, because obviously, and just sociologically, people are so influenced by the people that they spend the most time around, if maybe the way either of you speak or talk or use your voices has been influenced by the other. If there has been like things you've picked up from each other, even if it's like phrases or, or verbal things as much as like the pitch or something of your voice. If, if there's anything like that, where like the Venn diagram has come a little bit closer together. Oh, no question. I will say that there are a lot of vocabulary words that we share that are very much, you know, they're like our speak, which we write a lot about that in our book, actually. You know, the way that we describe our friends is called our friend web when, you know, this 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 tendency that we have to to be like not dramatic people we call low drama mamas. We you know, there, I, I feel that even when we, you know, in the era that Gchat was very big in our lives, we also like chatted the same way, which is, I think, a thing that a lot of friends do. You know, I also think that you do pick up on each other's inflections and things like that. There were, there were points in the writing process where we would hear each other read out loud what we had written. And, you know, I, sometimes I would close my eyes and I was like, that is, I'm like, did I write that or did Anne write that? You know, is that my memory or is, is that, you know, is that a joint memory? And I think that that is true of anyone who is really, really, really close. So I, th- I think that that's totally normal. And then there are also ways in which I think we talk very differently that make me really happy because I'm very much like, oh, yeah, that's a, you know, that like that Anne says this word in this very particular way. And it always brings me like a lot of delight. How about for you, Anne? How do, how do you frame those differences coming together? Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely true that the two of us have exchanged probably as many or more words <laughs> um, than I have with any other friendship or relationship in my life. And I, I think that it is difficult to exactly see where we are mirroring each other or where we have kind of created similarities in like cadence or, you know, stuff that is not just literally the words we use. Like I'm, I, I should have had a better vocabulary for this coming on a, a podcast about voices. But, you know, um, I, I do think that that happens in all friendships, right? Like the way you kind of signal you're paying attention and the rapport you develop is manifested in how you talk to each other. And yeah, and how you text to each other. Yeah, it's certainly true that... Um, like humor has always been a big part of it, you know, and there are phases and fads in the kinds of jokes that we have with each other. And that is a true delight of being in a friendship this long and um, a true delight of reflecting on it for this book is we could be like, oh, God, remember the years when we just like when hashtags were a joke, like we used hashtags as like a punchline for a solid three years. Like that was just part of our vocabulary with each other. And of course, it's gone away. It's a different thing now. But I love the idea that you can also move through phases linguistically with friends. Yeah. And it's cumulative, too. So like all together after 11 plus years, things just kind of take on more and more weight and gravity and meaning and import and, and emotional resonance in life. Right. We share like emojis. There are gifts that are like so specific to our friendship. I yeah. Wait, can I ask what me... one of those emojis is? If it's shareable. I mean, yeah, I mean the, you know, the the aubergine emoji, I think in every <laughs> friendship is uh, you know, has its own has its own meaning. I think in our friendship was like particularly really funny. I which other emoji was like a real emoji in this friendship? Oh, you know the the like the squiggly face like uh the one that I use whenever I'm embarrassed about something. <laughs> 
<laughs> awkward the awkward face like um the emoji that's like it's kind of a crooked yeah cro- crooked squiggle wince is how i would maybe oh, describe like, that emoji mm, like that on the yeah. face <laughs> not the angry one but the like awkward feelings one mm-hmm. is like a hundred percent the emoji equivalent of like certain behaviors that aminatu does when she is feeling like oh god this is so embarrassing in person like mm-hmm. it's like it's not just like oh this is a text that only we use but when i see that i really picture a very specific in-person behavior on her behalf you know yeah and I do love the idea as well of of talking about you were talking about friend web or or kind of creating terms between the two of you things like shine theory and and things like that or even like the term big friendship the name of your book because I love that as evidence of what your friendship means as an act of creativity because I feel like some some friends when they get together maybe in like the worst case scenarios they can drag each other down or I know there's even a group of friends I have where kind of the the default that we revert to is like not using grammar properly on purpose and just saying like let's go to a restaurant restaurant good things like that but I love the idea (laughs) that for both of you that that friendship is not only just like an act of of satisfying your own needs and getting what you want from the other person, but it's like partnering together and making something. And not not even just like the podcast and the book, but just like these little terms and these things between both of you. A co-created vocabulary for sure. How did both of you use your voices growing up? Were you performers at all? Did you did you do anything like singing or or do any theater stuff growing up? Absolutely not. I was the opposite of a theater performing nothing like no debate, no performance. No, like I grew up in a family where that was all deeply embarrassing. So no thanks. I also cannot sing, which is not really a regret I have, but I I, I do not sing out loud. So I don't know. And I think I also don't listen to myself enough. Uh, and doing a podcast is definitely a little bit jarring in the sense where, you know, you have to hear your own tape. Sometimes you have to edit your own voice. And it always seems like that person is a different person than me. I, I don't think I'm embarrassed by it necessarily. I think I'm just, it truly, it does not sound like I sound to myself. And I think that that is a very normal, you know, the way that you hear yourself speak is different because you are hearing it inside your voice. And so when you hear it the way that other people hear it, it just, there is a huge dissonance there. I think also for me, because I I grew up speaking French and I've had like various iterations of how I speak English. Um, You know, I'm I'm currently in my longest phase, my California Valley Girl phase. Uh, (laughs) There is also something really funny about like, I'm like, yeah, I, I know that I definitely sound different than I sounded in high school. And I know that I sound different than I sounded in college. And depending on where I am, I also notice that my cadence or my inflection or a lot of things change. Like when I'm with my Texas friends, I definitely have more of a, you know, like I have more of a draw. There are more Texas words that I use. And so it's the whole thing is just very fascinating and weird. But um, yeah, I, I know a lot of people say they don't like their voice. I think for me, it's very, it's different than that. It's not that I don't like my voice. It's that I truly just don't recognize it because that is not how I sound to myself. So the whole thing feels odd. Yeah, there's a gap there that that hasn't even closed that much, even after doing a podcast for so many years. There's still a gap between what you're sounding like in your head right now and then what it'll sound like later when you listen back. Does that exist for you, Anne, in the same way? Oh, for sure. Um, I think that 
I I had this whole this phase of my professional life where I did listen to my voice a lot um, uh, in recordings of interviews I had done with people like for to appear in magazines or to appear in written form. And that was always so painful because, you know, I mean, the point was not to sound good. Right. The point was to kind of get the other person to say things that, that I was interested in. And nothing will ever top the pain of listening to interview transcripts um, for me, especially in the pre-podcast years. And now I guess I I'm more accepting of it. A few experiences I've had where I've had to do multiple takes of something, which is not really how we do call your girlfriend. You know, call your girlfriend is a pretty straightforward, like what the conversation we have is what you hear on the podcast. But other projects I've done. Yeah. Um, yes. Uh, but other projects I've done where there is perhaps a producer saying, try saying it like this or that. That is something that made me, I guess, more comfortable with just my off the cuff speaking voice, because so much of what they were trying to do was to get me to say it more naturally. I don't know. I guess it just it is what it is. I, I have accepted it like other things about my physical self. I'm just like, this is how it is. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't really feel I don't really feel any kind of way about it. Um the way I used to when I think we first we first embarked on on doing this show. Yeah, I think also, you know, early on when we were doing this show and we would get a couple of notes about or at least like I definitely did. I would get a lot of mail about your voice sounds awful or the the way that you speak sounds awful. And that criticism was so indistinguishable in the people's like criticism. You know, it's like it's like, well, do you do you like do you hate how I speak or do you hate that I speak? Because I can't tell the difference. And I think that. That was really instructive for me really early on because, you know, while I understand that I could say fewer likes and fewer ums and ahs or whatever, I was like, if you want to listen to NPR, you should listen to NPR. This show is not NPR. But also, I can't change how my voice comes out of the voice box. You know, there there's all sorts of, if you're not comfortable with your physical appearance, I think that there are all sorts of ways that you feel pressure that you can change that maybe. But with your voice, it's actually impossible. So in a way that was really freeing for me. It was like, well, you don't like it, don't listen to it. But I truly, I was like, there is nothing I can do to change how this voice is coming out of the voice box. So good luck to both of us. Yeah, I think that's true for me too, of like finding some more confidence with the fact that what we do is inherently conversational. We are not trying to read from a script. And people who have that expectation and are therefore critical of the way we speak on our show, it's very easy to dismiss because it's like, okay, well, you missed the premise. That's fine. Bye. You know? (laughs) Um, But yeah, I feel the same way. And I don't imagine as women, you get an undue amount of criticism for the way you sound or speak or anything like that in podcasts. No, form, never right? happens. That's never happens. Occurred, never right? happens. It's t- it never happens. It's truly, I, you know, I hear that men receive so much criticism for how they sound on podcasts and Every people day. just want them to sound more professional <laughs> and, you know, have less of a lilt and, you know, the, the phenomena of, um, of, uh, um, what's that fake linguistic phenomena that they're always accusing oh, women of? Oh, vocal fry. Oh, the way we're. Oh, vocal fry. Yeah, only men have vocal fry. I've never ha- heard a woman with vocal fry. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Can we stop talking about Ira Glass's vocal fry, please? I'm just like we I can't. Know. We can't. I know. We have to it, move on. It dominates the conversation. King of king of vocal fry. 
<laughs> since starting recording this podcast right now this morning i've received seven emails about how my vocal fry is off off the charts bad so yeah it's this something has to be stopped obviously like every industry men have it harder than women and we can all agree to that and uh <laughs> but but truly with that stuff it is it is very uh and obviously not something i have um that much experience with other than when i've had guests on my show and they've experienced a certain amount of thing or, or when i've had female co-hosts that it is just a why do you think that is cultural wide why other than just like deeply ingrained misogyny why do you think it is that women for whatever reason have more scrutiny as far as their vocal performance goes we don't need more explanation than uh deeply ingrained misogyny <laughs> i think that I think that, um, you know, the voice that you, that people, that society is used to hearing as an authoritative, smart, um, you know, informative or entertaining voice, that voice is always default male. You and I went to uh, the university that invented Walter Cronkite, you know, the voice of the voice of like American like journalism. It is so deeply ingrained to people that when a man is speaking you know, like he's supposed to be speaking. But when a woman is speaking, we are scrutinizing, you know, and it's funny to, to be doing um, a podcast where no one is, no one sees what we look like or, you know, I'm like, you truly like this is not about appearance. And so to me, the, the misogyny really should be questioned that much more because people are making assumptions literally based on what we sound like. And so whenever I get that kind of mail, or that critique, you know, anytime I go on the radio or whatever, there's always a note that's like, oh, you said something so smart. Why don't you sound smart? And I'm so glad that we do a show that is basically at its core about what a scam like patriarchy is, because, it's, you know, I am reminded in the critique of why don't you sound smarter, that the whole thing is a scam. And that what it's about is about not like actually taking women seriously. I was like, here we are. Um, literally, you can't see us. We are just using our words. And there is there can still be like misogyny wrapped into that. So I um, I am deeply disappointed by society. But also, uh, you know, I'm like, we're not going to stop doing what we're doing. This is fun. Yeah, I mean, it's also much larger in the sense of um, the ways that women have to modulate their authority and their opinions out in the world. I think the critique of speaking style is just a vector of that. And I really always make a point of when there is a woman I know who, I don't know, let's say I've been in the audience while she's interviewing someone, or when it's someone I know has started a new podcast, I really go out of my way to say, like, I like your voice, like, you sound good, because I think there is just so much stress involved in trying to hit this perfect tone of, like, I want to be myself, but also I know how everyone's judging me and I want to be taken seriously, and oh god, how many times did I say like? And, you know, because of all of this is so policed, um, for all the reasons we were just discussing, I think it's not just a matter of there being more podcasts that sound like ours. I think that there, in some cases, really needs to be more explicit permission granting. Like, I like the sound of your voice. Keep saying your opinions out loud is a, is a thing that I really try to say to people, people who are women. <laughs> yeah. And to be clear, this also is true of, um, you know, for people of color, people who are not white, their voices are scrutinized in ways that are really insidious. And I think it's also true of people who um, are not straight. You know, this whole phenomena of is there is there such a thing as gay voice? I was just watching a documentary on this last week and 
it, I think that it's something that is really, 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 really important to interrogate because it's just so wild to me that even in a format where you cannot see people, the default again is a white straight man, you know, and how how as a society have we said that that is okay? And I think that it, you know, it just really locks a lot of people out of um, of doing radio and of doing podcasts and of being taken really seriously when we are saying that there is only one kind of voice that is you know, a normal voice to hear in this format. And hopefully that's something that I, I get optimistic about. I think especially with the show that, that both of you do with Call Your Girlfriend, there is something kind of beautiful to the idea of the way you use your voices on the show do, does ultimately serve the underlying purpose of the show, which is not an authoritative dissection of blah, 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 or like, we're going to get into this, or we have to talk about this issue today, but an authentic conversation between friends. So there are the same stop and starts. There is the same chemistry. There is the same banter. There's the same sort of like unvarnished off the top of the dome. And I know there's still like editing involved and, and much thought put into it and much care, but, but that is reflected. The premise of the show is reflected in the way that both of you use your voices on the show. I'm like, is there a word, uh, is there like a word for dog whistle that is not like comes with the, you know, the racial connotations of that, but really for, oh, we, we are just talking to people who talk like us. And we are hoping that those are the people that hear us. And I think that, um, you know, our audience is that they have really picked up on the fact that we are real people who talk to each other and they talk to their friends the same way that we talk to our friends. And there is just something, I think, about that voice and that chemistry that appeals on on just like a very human level. Let's take a break from Aminatu and Anne's inviting voices, and we'll be right back with more Inside Voices. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is Gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome back to Inside Voices. And now, the rest of my conversation with Aminatu and Anne. So yeah, we met in 2009, as previously established. Um, 11 had, years, if you don't know the math. Do the math, do the math. We'll put it in the um, show notes, just so people are clear, yes. <laughs> we, we, at the time, had um, a friend in common, uh, our friend Dio, who was, for me, I think, a friend of about a year or a year and a half. And um, for Aminatu, was a newer friend of maybe, like, a couple months or weeks. And... After Dio met Aminatu, she was like, oh, you really need to meet Anne. The two of you would really, really hit it off. And so 
uh, Dio and I kind of conspired um, to have <laughs> to have some people to Dio's for a TV viewing party. She lived in a group house that had cable, which 2009, uh, I don't know if you remember, but like going to someone's physical television and sitting down together to watch TV was a thing. Um, and, and she and I, and then as she had discovered Aminatu, were all viewers of Gossip Girl, um, a CW teen soap opera set in Manhattan private schools. And so anyway, so she sent, she invited Aminatu and me and a couple other friends, and we were both at Dio's for, you know, the duration of this episode, which was about as long as it took for us to decide that we very much wanted to become friends and her instinct had been correct. As we became better friends, we started having these kind of like low-level collaborations together. We never sat down and said like, oh, let's start a blog or oh, let's let's write a book or let's do a podcast. I think that we are two people for whom, you know, like we like we're definitely nerdy. We love work. Work is a huge part of our identity. And so it became really normal to have these really low-level collaborations. We had a blog that we did together. We would always start all these Tumblrs together. Sometimes they were for public co- for public consumption and other times private consumption. And the idea was never about the work product itself, for me at least. It was always about, oh, I get to spend more structured time with my friend. So we meet in 2009. And then um, in 2014, our friend Gina Delvac, who is our producer now, um, was someone who was a friend of Anne's, who was someone that I had met through Anne like very recently at this um, group vacation that we take together called Desert Ladies really brought it up to us that we could do a podcast. And, you know, I was very much like, uh, what is a podcast? And, you know, she starts explaining it. I don't know how microphones work. I don't know how recording equipment works. And the prospect of, oh, I get to spend more time with Gina and more time with Anne and it's structured time and I get to learn a new skill was, um, that was the appeal to me. It, we did not sit down and hash out some sort of a, you know, a business plan of how do we make a podcast? Because if you remember at the time, that was not really something that was an option. You know, no one was really making podcasts like they are today. And so it was more of a, it was more of a hobby and labor of love that turned that then turned into a business. And I think that at its core, why that was possible at all is because all three of us are just very diligent, uh, nerdy, work-obsessed kind of people. And Gina has very correctly identified that we are, you know, the three people that in high school we would do the group projects for everyone else. And it's why we work really well together. I know that, you know, we, we have had other kinds of experiences working in groups, making things with people the podcast felt very different to me and it felt like a very natural kind of chemistry and a, you know, there was just like trust built in from the beginning. And we did our show for over a year before we ever even understood that it was possible that, you know, there could be ads on the podcast. We did not seek out advertisers. Advertisers sought us out. And so we kind of fell into a business completely ass backwards. And I am convinced that so much of the success of the show is that if we had sat down and said, okay, here's how we're going to make a, you know, like a chart topping podcast for women ages 18 to 34. I don't think we would have succeeded at that at all because it's so antithetical to, to who we are, but also it was very antithetical to what we wanted at the time. At this point, it is true that we have worked together, Anne and I and, Anne and Gina and I have worked together longer than we have not 
And, um, you know, and that our friendships are definitely tied into this this work product that we have. But I feel very confident saying that um, it is truly because of the the time that we get to spend doing the thing that we want to do and not because of the business of what we do. Yeah. And the germ of that being not a uh, yeah calculated business decision of, oh, I think we can hit the charts at this demo and blah, blah, blah. But, but the idea of using the podcast as sort of a social, almost like a game night or something of like, hey, this is a way we, we can have like this regular rhythm of meeting up and, and having fun or doing this thing or working on this endeavor together without much right, of something a, we wanted to learn together. Yeah. I, again, yeah. Having the best people from the group projects in high school all come together for an Avengers team of a group project of, of a podcast. And, and the, yeah, we're a nerdy super group. <laughs> the results speak for themselves. And and for at the time, I I, w- I would love to just go back and and kind of get your impressions of what it was like to do a show like this for the for the market that it was at. Because again, podcasting, you're right, was in such this different place. Definitely in terms of like monetization and stuff, but then also in like genres and subgenres, they didn't quite exist the same way where it's like any of us could say a premise right now and I could say, oh yeah, there's like three that are kind of like that, but not exactly like that. I don't know that I really thought of it that way. I think that doing a podcast itself felt novel, right? Like full stop. Like it was it wasn't yeah. like I knew many people who had one. I don't know about you, I mean not too, but No, there wasn't think, like even hearing yeah. the word market, I was like, there was not a market. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Well, and and such as it was a market, I mean, you know, you memorably made the comment that, like, if all these comedy bros can do it, how hard can it be, right? Like, it was definitely something that some comedians did and some established kind of NPR-adjacent things like This American Life. And then shortly after we started Serial, um, you know, it was a space that, you know, traditional audio people were in, but it was not... It, it it really wasn't wasn't a market like I don't I don't really think I thought of it that way and and you know it's funny looking back because right one reason why our show became popular rather quickly is because we were filling a gap in the market like people did want to hear two women in conversation or two people with kind of our specific lens on things that was that was not super overrepresented I mean there were other conversational shows that were. Um, really, I would say divergent from like the tone of traditional news. You know, like I think about the read, for example, which predates us by a long time. That is really that similar conversation at the heart kind of structure or style. Yeah. So it's weird to be like, we didn't see it as a market and yet we filled a hole in the market. <laughs> yeah. But that's usually um, how it happens, is- you know, unless you're like a tech bro in Silicon Valley doing an app. Like it, it usually is like, Oh, yeah, I guess there was a need for this. And it happens to be something that we both thoroughly enjoy. And I think that we knew there was a need for it in the sense of like that comment of Aminatu says it all, right? Like we know we can see who is doing who is in this medium right now and they are not people who look and sound like us. And therefore, that that is a motivating factor for us to want to do it, right? It's sort of like baked in while at the same time was not something that was explicitly top of mind. And something that I think is so beautiful because it's like, you know, if you want to make TV, you have to be a television writer. If you want to make a movie, you have to be a director, you know, in, in that sense. But as far as like the medium of podcasting goes, there is a democratization in terms of the kind of people that get to make it. And even if there is the dominance of like comedy bro white guys or NPR types or like here's the produce, you know, this, you know, very um, 
produced out thing that's like investigative journalism or true crime, but can also be a journalist and, and a digital strategist as well. And and it can have the exact same effect and, and garner the exact same audience just by its own merits, which is kind of beautiful. And to be fair, we did have a pro on our team. You know, Gina had um, a public radio background and ha- is was always deeply knowledgeable about this medium, right? So it's it's not like we were just two people who like Googled how to do this. Like we, she was really very much someone who was steeped in this world and was already a phenomenal editor. You know, it's not like we all learned from scratch. She really started way ahead of where the two of us were. For a show like Call Your Girlfriend. For, for both of you, what your perspective is on the most difficult parts of the labor of putting it together is like something that may seem invisible to the listener's ear where it's not like, oh, yeah, they had to record a bunch of VO and then here's a part of the score or it's scripted or something like not labor in that sense. But putting together an unscripted chat show between the two of you does require, I'm sure, a lot of emotional and just like mental intellectual labor. But how, how would you describe that labor? Yeah, you know, I think that the more we have done done the show, the more that is also apparent to me because, uh, you know, the three of us for like Anne, Gina and I, Call Your Girlfriend is not our main um, like professional outlet or professional, you know, endeavor or in some years is not the thing that pays us the most money. And so I think that remembering that, um, you know, we all have other jobs, one, and like that at its baseline means that, oh, yeah, like everyone is showing up here because they want to and not because they have to, in a sense. And, you know, and I think that we there's also for a long time, it was also only just the three of us, you know, so Gina cuts and edits the show. Anything that was on the technical aspect was really something that was like, you know, like kind of on her to do. And then Anne, I would say, like drives a lot of our editorial, you know, makes a lot of decisions around how are we talking about the things that we're talking about? How are we, you know, how how is the show sounding week to week? And I think that as the years have gone by, that has also gotten really professionalized. And for me, it's the experience of being a guest on other podcasts, not like on the big radio shows or whatever, but when I'll go on another show that is very much like our peers or our, you know, like kind of our same demo. And I'm like, what? Uh, all of this is scripted? You you have like someone has written all these intros. There is research to these interviews. There is, you know, there is there is a kind of um, not saying that like we don't pre-plan. We, we do pre-plan a lot. But I think that really understanding that there was a very... Um, there was a, a professional apparatus behind a lot of shows that sound really freewheeling and fun was something that was definitely a really eye-opening revelation for me. And that is still a kind of support that we don't have. We are really, really, really lucky to have um, an associate producer now, um, Jordan Bailey, who is amazing. We have, um, you know, someone who helps on the editorial side with like running traffic in our inbox and running our newsletter, Laura Bertacci. We have Carly Knowles, who runs our our merch store. And so watching how like the little scrappy call your girlfriend team also is becoming more and more of, a, you know, like its own its own team has been has been really fun. But I think that every level that we are leveling up at also means that we are spending more time like managing people is something that's like still a challenge for us because we are for as much as we are part of a network that sells our ads, we are a pretty much like an independently run show. And so I think that that distinction between 
Um, you know, like we are a show that we we conceived our show ourselves. We still produce and put out our show ourselves is very, very, very different than the experience of a lot of podcasters that we are peers with who are part of a kind of a bigger media conglomerate where, you know, for all intents and purposes, either you have more support or at least you report to more people. I only report to two people in my business, which is very exciting. I think that all of those things, all of those things are challenges and then couched in the fact that, oh yeah, this is also not the only thing that we do. Like on top of that, Gina has a full-time job being an amazing producer and like consultant for audio. Like Anne is, you know, the the Lance Armstrong of writing. Well, I, I say this not in the doping sense, in the like he was truly <laughs> yeah, dominating just to clarify. the mountain sense. <laughs> Outing um, me. Dominating the mountain <laughs> sense. Uh, you know, like where she is like constantly writing uh, magazine articles and like co-wrote this book with me. Like we like we have a lot of shit going on in this family. And so I think that um, every time I get a little notification on a Friday that we, you know, our show is up. I am like truly thrilled because I know how hard it is to go from like finding the time to record to this like showing up here consistently. And we also do 52 episodes a year, which at this point I now know is demented, you know. And so there, there, there is so much there. Yeah, but I, I'm sure all those things and those factors and especially like the scrappy roots of it and even now how hands-on you are and that there isn't some sort of like apparatus that has more control over the show than the both of you makes, you know, only increases the pride that both of you have in the show and what you do. Yeah, it feels great. I love the fact that we are self-owned and operated. And I also love only answering to... Um, Gina and Aminatu, who at a at a values level are people I consistently am aligned with on all the most important things. And I have never had a business partnership that is this long running. Um, so I guess I don't have a lot to compare it to. But I would say for me, like that, that provides me with so much security where I, I know that like we might have different ideas about things that are more surface level, or we might have different ideas about how to go about solving a problem. But you know, identifying something as a problem that needs to be solved or deciding how we are going to address something that has cropped up, like at a fundamental values level, we are just so aligned. And like that part of being co-owners is something that I value more and more and more in each passing year. For a show like Call Your Girlfriend 2, where it's not necessarily, okay, here's a topic and let's talk about it in the sense of like the show is about music or the show is about politics and we're the two hosts talking about it. But the the substance of the show is the both of you and it's your friendship and you could not swap out a co-host or, you know, go on leave or something like that. It is you two. So with that being said, how do you protect the fundamental integrity of your relationship after performing it 52 times a year? Oh, man, that's such a good question. I think, you know, we were both really clear with each other, whether we said it out loud or not, early on that the friendship that is on the show, it's obviously like very real. I think that our rapport is you can hear our rapport, you can, you can infer that we are people who love each other. But I think that because we are also people who fundamentally come from a media ecosystem, we understood that the show was really an edited version of who we were. And so if you're a careful listener of our show, like, sure, you have some biographical details about us. You you kind of know where we grew up or you you know that we met at a Gossip Girl party or whatever. You know these very surface level things about us. But I think that 
at no point in our show is it apparent to the listeners where we were at emotionally, right? And I think that that was that was always by design. Like we are not people who are um, online oversharers on any of our any of our platforms. We also have made our show in the era in which like a lot of those lines have been muddled and a lot of expectations from from you know like audience from podcasts about like oh yeah like what's you know like what are Anna and Amina like behind this microphone is those privacy lines get blurred more and more but I am really proud of us that a value that we always shared is that you know our life is our life and the show is the show and those two things are different. I you know and we write about this a lot in um in Big Friendship this this experience of um, being two friends who are known for being friends by other people. I think that at a fundamental level, like any two friends have that in their friend group. But we are also known for being friends by a ginormous group of strangers, predominantly our um, our podcast listeners. And, you know, and I will be honest that for a long time, I really didn't think about it. That never factored in. Like, I just I just didn't think about it. And I think that that is a very naive understanding of how, how I am perceived and what I actually do. You know, it's just like, yeah, I'm like, I have a public Instagram. It means that a lot of people know, you know, at a very base level who I am, or I host this podcast show. So there are, you know, there are more strangers than listen to our show than there are um, of our friends who listen to the show. And that was always true. But I think that personally, I just did not really understand that. And I did not understand what that meant. I also think that for as much as the show itself has never been a source of conflict in our friendship, when we realized that we were not talking to each other about how strangers' perceptions were making us feel about ourselves and our friendship is when I started to understand that something was off in our friendship. It was like, oh, we talk about everything. And uh, this podcast that we're doing is suddenly becoming really popular and we are not talking about it. We're still showing up every week and we're we're scrambling to put on a show. We are doing it so admirably and well. But we are really just not talking about, um, oh, yeah, how does it make you feel that we're going on tour? Or how does it make you feel that random people will come up to you on the street and be like, oh, I like call your girlfriend or whatever. Like we were just not talking about those things, which to me was a really first early indication of, hmm, something here is (laughs) something here is not right. And so I always think about the show more of a as a barometer of, you know, what is going on behind the scenes than the the behind the scenes being the barometer of how does the show sound or how is the show being made? Is that fair, Anne? Yeah, I think that I would maybe say it a little differently in the sense that for me, the show is the two of us in conversation about things happening outside our friendship, um, you mm-hmm. know, in politics and news and culture. And every once in a while, in order to have that conversation, we talk about something that is more between the two of us. But by and large, we're looking outward. When I think about our friendship, the real the real friendship, like not recorded on audio, it's about looking inward and toward each other. It's about saying, here's what I'm going through right now. What's happening with you? What's happening with your family? What's happening with your feelings? You know, And that level conversation, the kind of inward looking one, we were both having feelings about how people were perceiving our friendship. And that's what we weren't talking about. Um, we were still only having the conversation about things that faced outward. And so, yeah, I fully agree with you. But I also think that it's going to be interesting. You know, this book is an inward looking book. You know, like this book is a- actually a lot closer to 
a private examination of our friendship than the podcast has ever been. You know, we're having this conversation before the book is out in the world. And I will be honest that I don't know what it's going to feel like when lots of people have all the information that's in the book. Like, I haven't, it's, you would think that I would have fully thought about this and made some like robust piece with, <laughs> with the fact that we are, we are having now this internal conversation publicly. But I guess we're going to see. We're going to see how it goes. I do want to talk about big friendship, though, both the book and just as a concept. How, how do you both define, quote unquote, big friendship? In the search for um, vocabulary and language about what we mean to each other, but also what our experience of deep kind of friendships that we've had with other people mean to us, we really found that, you know, there was not a precise vocabulary for someone who you are in a platonic relationship with, who really is at the center of your world. You know, we like we have called each other like besties and BFF. And um, I don't regret it. I think I will keep using those words interchangeably. But there is something really infantilizing about just saying that someone is your best friend or they're your BFF or whatever. Those are friends that you make at camp or they're friends that you make in high school or in whatever in elementary school and we're you know like we're we're like grown-ass people um who are business married to each other and really finding the words for like how do how do you call someone who is at the center of this really mature and long-term and future-facing kind of friendship that you want to have that also um really does not deny the fact that in order to be to be friends with someone for a long time, in order to keep each other close, you are going to go through a lot of shit. Like it's just it is just not possible that you can be in a close relationship with someone and want them to be there for the rest of your life. And it's not going to be hard at some points. The kind of infantilized version of BFF and best friend or whatever does not account for difficulties. It only accounts for um the epic like meet cutes and retellings and the and the fun stories about your friendship. You know, and so that is how we came up with big friendship. And really so much of the book is about putting labels and names and coming up with a vocabulary for experiences that are honestly like very, very common. Um, we think that if we did our job well, people reading it will really, really notice the contours of their own friendships and their own relationships. And so so much of writing the book is not in service of, oh, look at our um, look at this like public facing podcast friendship and how, uh, you know, like special uh, Amina and Anne are. It really is about putting on the table and having this kind of forensic examination of, oh, when two people are really close and they want to be close forever, um, a, an experience that is honestly like very cliche and universal, what does it mean to do that together? And what does it mean to to kind of make your own boundaries and your own rules about how you will go moving forward? I have a fantasy in my friendship with Anne that we will be there in like side by side lounge chairs on some like old retiree beach, you know, and I am I'm like, I am working hard towards that, like uh, physically and emotionally. And I recognize that in order to get there to have those old days, we are going to have to we are going to have to learn how to communicate with each other. We are going to have to learn to to really talk through the threats and the issues that come to our friendship, whether they come from within or from the outside world. And so that is my long-winded way of saying, please read Big Friendship. It answers a lot of these questions. <laughs> um, I think that, you know, not only did we need a new term, but we wanted to explore this idea at book length because 
we had read in the world of like fiction about complicated long-term friendships that acknowledge that there are two different people here with two different perspectives on the situation. And we had read like one-sided memoirs about friendship that might be kind of difficult. But when it came to nonfiction that was really trying to give like some big ideas about about friendship. Most of it was only about the good parts, you know, the the like, oh, feeling really seen and known and supported by this other person. And while that was certainly a part of and has always been a part of our friendship, there are also a lot of difficulties and things that we've had to figure out how to navigate. And And so a real motivator in working on this book was saying, can we talk about the good and the difficult and the complicated all in one space. And um, and can we do that as two individuals who are really trying to come to a joint understanding of what our friendship has meant in both its like really exciting butterflies in the stomach positive moments and also in its real deeply lonely and difficult places as well. There is always this question of, you know, like as you get older, how do you make new friends? And, you know, and I think that in writing the book, we really only examine the how do you keep your friends close because our experience has not been one of people who have struggled to make friends. And we know that that is a that is a really painful thing that people experience. And, you know, and kind of my my hope with us, you know, contributing this tiny, 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 tiny thing to the to the friendship canon is to have more books like that crop up. Like I would love to read a book that is all about um how do you make new friends as an adult? Like, I would love to read that because I, um, you know, for a long time I was like, oh, yeah, that's not a problem I have because I'm blessed with, you know, friends that I made in my 20s that I am now struggling <laughs> to keep through the rest of my life. But I, you know, like now in my mid 30s, I, you know, I also experienced these things. So I'm like, oh, yeah, I met a cool person today, but how are we going to go by being friends? We have so much going on. And so... I think that there are, you know, there's so many big questions about friendship, whether it's like, how do you make them? How do you keep them? How do you communicate with your friends? How do you how do you tell the world that your friend really is the person that is your person in the world, in a world that is so obsessed with romantic relationships? And so my hope really is that so many more of these books will crop up because we need them. We are not having really a robust conversation as a society about the really vital and important role of friendship. Every time we talk about it, it's this thing that is just like superficially supposed to make you feel good about yourself. But there are actually a lot of, um, you know, much deeper like implications about friendship. It's like, what what is the public policy implication of friendship? What is the, you know, like the privacy implications? What are the 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 health implications? And all of these all of these things, like as a society, we need friendship to be something that is important because so many people thrive in every area of their lives when we make it possible to have and keep friends. And so I'm just really excited about, you know, about people reading our book and also it being this, this flashpoint for other people about like, oh, yeah, they missed this part and I would like to explore that or this is something else that we're not talking about and someone should explore that because I think that – um it is really a topic that does not have, you know, like Anne said, in fiction is like super explored, but in nonfiction, I would say is a very kind of one-sided exploration of what friendship can be. And so I am I am just really, really, really excited about the conversation that can that can be made possible but by our small contribution. And 
for the listener at home, here's my friendship tip. Find someone you've been mean to get closer to. Buy them big friendship and send it to them. As a little gift. As a treat. (laughs) And then they'll be like, we barely know each other. This is inappropriate. (laughs) Or they'll be like, thank you. I would love to. Amina, Anne, I really like your voices so much, and I'm very grateful for them. Thank you for having us. Of course. Thanks for doing the show. What a fun time. Thank you for having us. You also have a fantastic voice. So Truly, you know, um, truly. Oh, that's very sweet. Thank you so much. That's yeah. Game recognize game. So, you know, uh, here we are. I think uh, I think the only reason my voice is good is because of some orientation sessions I went through in college a, a number <laughs> of years ago in which there was wow, a, a woman there wow. that just like I really appreciated hearing the way she spoke and and whatnot. You know, I'm just, I'm so happy you grew up to be a thriving member of society and that all of these me undie ads are keeping a roof over your head. I'm, I'm so happy for, you know, like shout out to me undies and Squarespace and all the sponsors. <laughs> Aminatou So and Ann Friedman have inviting voices and you can hear those voices on Call Your Girlfriend wherever you get your podcasts and in their new book, Big Friendship, available everywhere on July 14th. Inside Voices is produced by me. Our theme music is by Pam Atori. And I'm Kevin T. Porter. Thanks for spending time with us today on Inside Voices. That was a HeadGum Podcast.